No, so roughly El Dorado 21 tries to depict a city called the highest town on earth. It's in Peru on the border with, with Bolivia and it's, it, it lies roughly at 5,500 meters of altitude. There's a glacier next door. It, it's not a place for the human being. So it's very, very harsh conditions. The genesis of the project was like, you know, just me looking for where should I go next? Where is the highest city on earth? And just just get me there and I'll bring you a film. This was kind of the deal. And the first time we tried to address uh, a production company in Peru to go on location scouting, the first thing they said is like, oh, you want to go on location scouting to La Rinconada? You should go with bodyguards. And I just turned to Louise and it's like, no way I'm going to start to make a non-fiction film with bodyguards on my back, you know. But the whole thing continues because we, then I went for location scouting, we were just three girls, it was fine. Uh, it was super hard, you know, after that, we couldn't sleep there. We had to commute every day for two hours because the place was just too dodgy to stay there. There's no infrastructure, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that are not in the film, that if you want to have those details and if you want to have those facts, you just Google it and it's going to be there immediately for you. When we were shooting there, um, after a week of being totally lost and having a film crew that expects you know, a shooting plan for the next day and there was no shooting plan, I really thought about calling uh, Lisbon and saying, you know, I'm sending everyone home. Uh, we're going to shoot another film in Peru and uh, I'm just give me a couple of weeks to figure out what this other film is and, um, and, and this phone call wouldn't have been unpredictable, you know, we were all waiting, he was waiting for that phone call. We picked an excerpt that is uh, 10 minutes long because you really need a bit of time and because the film is basically uh, relying upon time. I decided to pick uh, an excerpt that is a bit long so you can also get this experience. This excerpt is actually coming out of uh, just a very long, uh, not the actually opening shot because the film is very metric, but just a shot that is actually one hour long and that we actually, we actually shot it for two hours on, on the very early stage of the shooting without the crew knowing what they were shooting. Rinconada, luna de oro, tu no más sabes cuánto llorando. Ritipata, riticucho, vaya que abajo mis amigos. On no man's land, it was very obvious that there were five days. And in here, it's very obvious that it's you know, we're going to focus on this mining town. So it's when I say, and when you were talking about, I just, I create this fence around the reality I want to depict, and I set the borders for it, and then I know that the shooting will take place within those borders, and, uh, and then it's a waiting process, you know, so for me production and, and, uh, and just fundraising for, for films is, how can I just buy more time to be on the spot? I don't shoot a lot, you know, the camera just goes out when there's actually something uh, to include in the film that has a particular space. 
uh, would ask, just take me to La Comporta. And La Comporta is actually a neighborhood within La Rinconada, and it's, uh, and it's a passage that it's one of the ways to access the mines. And, uh, but on the other side of this bajada, of this little hill, there are also, you know, traders and peasants, and that's why you see, like, mothers with babies, uh, that's why you see, you know, people carrying mattresses, dogs, and, you know, there's all this thing. And, and honestly, you know, I could sit there for hours. It's really like this trance-like effect. And, and this is rush hour, so basically the mines, they work for 24 hours, but there is like shifts that change. And this is when one of the shifts is changing, but it's also, you know, it goes along with the sunset. So then the traders and, and just the other people that are not just serving the mines, but the community, they actually go back to their other neighborhoods. So they're actually on the way in this passage too. When I look for these places, it's really important that I just jump on it. And when I talk about waiting and the whole thing and, you know, and waiting until the extraordinary just comes out of, you know, daily life somehow. And when it happens, you know it's happening. The same with No Man's Land, you know. It's like, okay, we're going to visit uh, Paulo's um, camp. So I, we just went there for a full day and, uh, and we, we didn't shoot almost anything until that, you know, before we were leaving, that, that shot happened, you know, and Shikinu starts to play our guitar and, and then you know that it's something that will be in the film and then you know that you have to press rec. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, just the fact that you are going there and it's a reality and that you're a strange body too, it creates some kind of friction and that friction for me creates the possibility of a film. So sometimes if it's not just diving into it is not enough, then sometimes it's just a matter of adjusting yourself. So maybe, you know, one step to your left or one step to your right actually will make the trigger for that um, magic to happen. It's an act of faith, you know, you, you're waiting for something. So it really plays with, with chances and accidents and, and with faith per se. The installation that Delphine was mentioning that is presented at the moment in Geneva, which is called The Burial of the Death and that is tightly related to Eldorado. I wanted to hear you about the different kind of experience because in this case, of course, the fact of having a one hour long scene uh, is, of course, like allowing the spectator to have a very specific um, experience. In the case of uh, the burial of the death, which is 90 minutes, so how did you address those specific contexts? I really feel that recycling is not a very good thing. And I also feel that we shouldn't do that because it's most of the times it's imposed by institutions. It's not uncommon that, you know, a filmmaker is asked to do, you know, if you could install that in the museum or not, if you could actually get us something else. And, and if we look at, uh, actually there was a moment that Faroki, he just stopped making films for the theater and he was like, no, I'm just gonna make now video installations, but I've seen those video installations on, on the theater and of course they're not 
as strong as they are in. So there's this whole thing that is together with the system that is not just our fault that we end up doing these things. You know, when I say it's a fake diptych, it's because you have this very long shot that you cannot grasp a lot of the place itself, and it's just like this Pompadoy uh, sequence shot, and then you have a close-up on all the testimonies and you get a lot of information. And on the second, um, let's say half, you, you just get these scenes that will give you cut-ups of what is La Rinconada in a very, you know, ethnographic approach somehow. This dialectic that I was really willing for it to happen, that she would, you know, just fight between the image and, and the subtitles, it, it's very hard for someone that has to read all the subtitles. So, I thought that the installation was a very good way to solve that problem that was kind of unsolvable on, on the film. You know, there's gaps in the long shot where you could actually just look at the image, but, but you're still fighting with it every time. Madrecita, lucha honra, tú que trabajas día y noche. Mientras los hombres se creen valientes, abandonando a sus hijos. Mientras los hombres se creen valientes, siguen.